Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to the Reliability Matters podcast. This is episode number 62. By now, most of us have heard of Industry 4.0 or the Industrial Internet of Things, otherwise known as IIoT, or Smart Factory or Factory of the Future. The key to all of these acronyms is connectivity, data management, material and process control, traceability, and analytics. It's not as simple as collecting data. The data must be understood, useful, and contextual. My guest today is Francois Monet. He is the co-founder and chief development officer at Kajiscan, a company specializing in track, trace, and control products for the electronics industry. Francois co-founded Kajiscan in 1999 with two other partners in Canada. Francois earned his mechanical engineering degree from McGill University in Montreal. Francois started his career at IBM and worked for contract manufacturers CMAC and Selectron before joining Universal Instruments. Here's my conversation with Francois Monette. Francois Monette, thank you for being my guest today on Reliability Matters. I appreciate you being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So as uh, you recently changed your title, uh, I understand, from uh, Chief Sales and Marketing Officer to Chief Business Development Officer. Sounds, sounds like a, it's on a, a higher platform there. What's the difference between uh, what you did and what you're doing now? Well, the only difference really is I used to handle both sales and marketing, and I, I guess I uploaded the marketing to someone else in the organization so I can focus more on sales, which is really the, the critical part of our business right now. So. Yeah, yeah, very good. How's, uh, how's the um, COVID-19 situation landing on your company? I, I know every company is affected by it. Uh, has, it, yes. has, it has it shook you up a bit? Is, is there a, a plan B to get all that uh, marketing and business development out there? Well, there was initially some some concerns, of course, like everybody else, we didn't know, uh, you know, how bad it was going to get and how long it would last and so on. Uh, we were quite fortunate that the Canadian government had some really good uh, pro support program for companies like us, and which, uh, in a sense, for through the, the, the slow months, you know, especially in, in the summertime for us, uh, they managed to uh, compensate for the lack of, uh, you know, the, the, the drop the drop in sales. And essentially, we've made no layoffs. Everybody remained employed. We actually hired a few people even since then. So uh, we, we managed to, to go through that, uh, you know, slow period uh, without any damage. And uh, so what happened is we, since we were a little bit less busy with customer projects, we we're able to invest more time in all of our strategic uh, initiatives uh, such that we're coming out of this uh, stronger and more ready for the, the expected upturn now. So. Yeah, yeah, uh, us too. We... We saw, I think in, in, in the beginning of March, my company's in California, so mm -hmm. we were kind of the first state to lead the charge of shutting down, right? A few days yeah. later, pretty much everyone else did. And when mm -hmm. everything shut down, I think the entire industry all looked at each other, like, you know, deer in the headlights, and everything stopped for about two yeah. weeks. And it was mm -hmm. very concerning. I, I'm sure you were in the same boat. Yeah. It was very concerning. Mm -hmm. First two or three weeks was you know, what's going to happen. And then I think once the industry realized that this isn't going away, this isn't just a three week shutdown, this is going to be around for a while, things just turned back on. And, 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 you know, the phone started ringing again, the email boxes started becoming full. The only major difference is we didn't travel anywhere. That's Which, exactly. Not a bad thing, you know, well, um, in certain ways. Yeah. Although I started missing travel now, almost a year, uh, Back in the home office, I, I enjoy traveling and meeting customers face to face. So I'm looking forward to be able to resume that at some point. Yeah, me too. I even even the worst days of travel are starting to sound, you know, starting to feel desirable again. You know, we, we yeah. miss what we can't have. So your company is is I, I believe just past a 20 year mark. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Will be 21 years actually uh, very soon. So yeah, like a milestone uh, that we achieve in 2020. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, here's, here's the big question for you. You, you started off with three co-founders, right? You're one of yes. three co-founders. Last mm -hmm. I checked, you're all still there. So yes. to start a company, you have to be um, a little bit crazy. We call that entrepreneur, mm -hmm. right? You have to be a little bit crazy. You, can't, you have to have a very poor assessment of risk uh, mm -hmm. and an and, and, and eternal optimist. And most entrepreneurs are very independent. They, 
we make terrible employees if we were to ever go back into the workforce. Um, so mm-hmm. how do three entrepreneur type people start a business? And well, I understand how you start a business. How 20 years later are you still working together? That, that in itself is a success story. T- tell me a little yeah. bit about that. It is a very good question, Mike. And actually, when we started, a lot of people were skeptical about the, the concept, you know, the three founders, uh, you know, managing the company. And essentially, uh, there was a really flat organization. We were just three founders side by side, with, although with different areas of responsibility, right? We're, we're all three of us are manufacturing engineers by background. We started our careers at IBM here in Bromo. That's the reason why we're located in Bromo. Um, but, uh, you know, Vincent was, uh, you know, uh, a bit more business oriented. Yet after doing a master's in engineering, he did a master's in business administration. So he's the MBA guy. So he takes care of the finance and general administration of the, of the company. Uh, Andre has always been more of an engineer's engineer, more technical uh, oriented. So he takes care of product management, product development. And I eventually uh, left in, you know, pure engineering to go into sales when I uh, worked for Universal Instruments as a sales engineer. So I, uh, naturally, uh, I took care of sales and marketing, right? So we all had different areas of interest, even though we had a common background. And uh, essentially, 20 years later, we still have the same interest and more or less the same split of responsibilities. And um, I think it's our personalities. Uh, yes, we, we are entrepreneurs, but uh, I don't think that we're... Uh, the kind of people that that uh, you know want to do t- things necessarily our, our own way. Uh, we were team players. Uh, you know, we uh, we think that the three of us, if we put our heads together, better things comes up that than if we were just all by ourselves. So uh, we still believe that very much. So after twenty years, and we still get along really well. So I, I would say that collaboration, in in that sense, is in our DNA. You know, that's the kind of people we are, and that's what allowed us to be very successful with. Uh, uh, creating long-term uh, partnerships with the equipment, equipment vendors and with software vendors, along with our customers. So uh, that's just the way we are. We like to get along and we like to work as, as a, you know, as a team and uh, towards a common goal. So, yeah. excellent, uh, unusual, and excellent. That's uh, that's probably why you're st- still around after 20 years when yeah. you know, most most unusual businesses are gone by now. Yeah, we, we don't mind the being unusual and uh, <laughs> I, I I totally agree. I totally agree. If we had a different, if this was a different show, um, we would dive deep into that. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise the bar a little bit. Albert Einstein once said that um, uh, intellectuals solve problems and geniuses prevent them. So you you guys are in the business, uh, and companies like yours are in the business of preventing problems, not just identify them, but the end, end result, uh, end goal is, is to prevent them. Your company's mm-hmm. tagline, and this is not a, meant to be a commercial for your company, but I, but I find some of the things you put on your website very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Your tagline is uh, making the world a, a, a better, uh, mm-hmm. making a better world through smarter manufacturing. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that your goal is the world, right? Which, mm-hmm. you know, I always say, you know, our, in our company, we want to change the world, right? Mm-hmm. Which sounds yeah. Pollyannish, it sounds grandiose, but mm-hmm. that's what we want to do. Whenever I see that in a company mm-hmm. uh, tagline or vision statement, I'm, I'm always impressed. So mm-hmm. uh, what is smarter manufacturing and how does smarter manufacturing prevent problems? Yes. Uh, and, and, and you're right, the, the, the meaning, you know, it, I mean, it may sound very ambitious to make a, a better world, but it, it doesn't mean that we're going to change the whole world by ourselves. But if we can make a small contribution to make the world better after, you know, we've been there and after the company was created, that's really the, the spirit, right? We want to have a, to do something meaningful. Uh, and that's why we started the company in the first place. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're trying to achieve at, at, at the scale that that's obviously, uh, you know, reasonable for us. So uh, we're very focused, right? We are experts in electronics manufacturing. We cover just one industry alone. And within that industry, we're focusing on very specific area, which is machine connectivity, data collection, track tracing control, right? So in that space, we do want to be the best in the world where we've always been very innovative and we want to continue to be innovative. We want to find better ways to solve old problems if you want. So uh, I think that's one of our trademarks, and it's, uh, it comes from uh, Andre's ingenious uh, mind of uh, finding simple solutions to very complex problems. You know? So after the fact, it looks very obvious what we're doing and why we're doing it that way. But initially, before we came up with some of these ideas, it was not so, so obvious. So we're, we're very 
I guess, uh, proud of that innovation aspect of, of things. But really, when it when it comes down to it, you know, we're manufacturing engineers, and, and manufacturing engineers just want to make things better all the time. You know, uh, of course, there's always a question of cost. You know, we have to reduce the cost, but uh, quality has always been very, very important, right? You don't want to, to buy an electronic product and have it fail after a couple of months or weeks, uh, even more so if it's a if it's a, the electronics is embedded in a life critical uh, mission like a like a car or an airplane or, or something like that, right? So people' lives depend on electronics and, uh, and and for these things to be put together properly. So there's still a lot of manual intervention that happens in the manufacturing floor. And every time there's a human involved, there's a risk of a human error, right? And uh, that includes myself. Uh, nobody's perfect and nobody... Uh, and, and if you look at the complexity of the, of the manufacturing process, there's a lot of room for human errors. I mean, one very simple example that I, I like to give because it's been around forever and it's still there is when you're trying to set up a, let's say, a pick and place machine. You know, you have maybe a hundred different components, uh, resistors, capacitors, different types of components. They physically all look the same. They get the same shape and size. And to the machine, if you put the wrong component, it won't even be able to tell the difference, right? That's why we're having all these sophisticated uh, systems uh, you know with barcodes and so on to verify that we put the right component the right in the right location so the machine will build the product but there's still a lot of factories where they rely on people to make sure that they're putting the right parts in the right place you know and of course there will be mistakes because even if you're very very good there's going to be hundreds of components every day that you have to put and sometimes those components you know the, i mean the part number can be 20 digits and only one digit is different and that makes the whole difference in the world so all these little things, uh, you know, is, is is what creates quality issues, creates uh, reliability issues, create a waste of time, money, resources. So, uh, you know, I mean, nobody's going to prevent progress and more electronics to be developed. But if we can do this, all these new products and this new technology in the most efficient way possible, you know, reduce waste of time, reduce waste of energy, reduce reduce waste of material, we're having a positive impact on the world in that sense. Sure. You, you, you talk about uh, human error. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Donald Berwick, who's a former administrator for the Centers uh, for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services. He was an appointee of um, our last president, President Obama. Uh, he said, uh, we must accept human error as inevitable and design around that fact. So, mm -hmm. you know, human error is not going to go away. We know that when we, our guests don't know this, but when we started the podcast this morning, I was the human with the error. Couldn't figure out your sound wasn't coming through. It turned out I had pushed the button. In fact, the, the statement I made at the time was the problem with software is it does everything you tell it to do. And since software yeah. is written by humans, it can be problematic. Your products interface with many different types of, of production equipment and many times um, uh, manufactured by companies that may not have IT experience. So your job is to connect someone else's product to a yep. information stream, and those manufacturers may not have any IT experience. So, do, does that present your company with a with a challenge? That's almost a rhetorical question uh, because I already know the answer is going to be sure. Uh, but how how do you overcome those challenges of of um, uh, digitizing, uh, being able to communicate with you know a machine that was never designed in the first place to communicate outside of its own uh, universe. Yeah, it, I would say it's a challenge, but also an opportunity for us because, uh, as you may be aware, about 50% uh, of our business is uh, selling our technology directly to the end users, the manufacturers themselves. But another half of our business is selling to the equipment uh, vendors uh, that embed our technology in their uh, overall portfolio. And as you mentioned, uh, these companies are Primarily, their core business is making machines, very smart machines, very good machines. Uh, but the, the IT side of it, you know, the connectivity to the outside world is, 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 is where typically uh, the, the, the limits of their expertise uh, lies around that. And that's where we come in, right? So we, ha we have this expertise of uh, connecting different data sources together, different types of machines, which have, uh, you know, the data source could be uh, just a simple text file in some, the, the simplest case. Or it could be a database that we have to uh, to query. It could be uh, sophisticated protocols in some cases. There's a really a wide range of uh, 
sophistication depending on the machine vendor i would say you know there's some really smaller companies that are have no clue uh, you know what what uh, what what this is all about and we have some companies you know the bigger ones that have uh, very large teams of software developers that are in very sophisticated interfaces so there's a wide range and we have to work with all of them and of course we're trying to help them and in many cases we become their provider of a uh, you know communication uh, interface for the outside world so they don't have to worry about uh, you know trying to understand what needs to uh, what needs to be done and how to develop it themselves we do that for them so the, the, this overall topic of uh, trying to tie different pieces of hardware and software together uh, is the challenge that we're essentially uh, tackling here you know that, that, that was our initial dream when we started 20 years ago as manufacturing engineers again we're not software developers by by, by background where we just saw that hey you know there's all these fancy machines and they all have their own little software uh, functions and they don't talk to each other right so uh, the data is uh, is lost as soon as you take a, a board from this machine to the next machine everything is lost and you have to re-enter the data and and and, and reprocess it and, and get a little bit of data out of that but in a different format what what a nightmare you know and that essentially that's what that's the challenge we've been pursuing since then and uh, it's a journey i mean it's a much better today than it was 20 years ago it will be much better 20 years from now it, and it will keep going it, it's that is a very early segue to some questions that I'm going to ask you. So, I'm, but I'm going to wait until uh, near the end to ask you those questions. But I am going to get into what were you guys thinking 20 years ago? What crystal ball were you looking into? Because you certainly saw something that the rest of the world didn't see. But before we get there, let's talk about uh, the 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 things that your company does. Uh, yes. There are several steps in the process of implementing a smart factory, smart factory, industry 4.0, IIoT, whatever people want to call it. Uh, they yeah. include you know, connectivity, which is obviously the, the most important part, data management, material and process control, traceability, analytics. Let's, let's break those down one at a time. Let's start with connectivity. Yeah. Walk, walk me through the steps beginning with connectivity. Um, do you approach equipment manufacturers? Do they reach out to you or do their mm -hmm. customer reach out? Who's the one that, that starts this conversation about, I think my machine needs to be connected to the world? Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good question, uh, and and just for 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 as a fun fact, uh, even a few years ago, we were not actually talking much about the connectivity part itself. We just took that as a prerequisite, you know, for the end functionality that we were selling to the customers. Let's say a customer says, "Okay, I need to uh, implement the traceability system for my customer." Uh, can can you please go in and do that? And as part of the putting together a traceability system, we had to connect to the machine. So we did that and then we provided the end result. Now, what we realized as people were going through the, you know, the industry 4.0 and that, that all the, these types of topics became more and more important. We realized that everybody was struggling with that machine connectivity piece and that we will actually develop a very good expertise in doing that. And that's when we decided, wow, okay, this is a business by itself. You know, either we can be very good at connectivity, but keep all the data to ourselves, or we can try to make that a big part of our business is to be the connectivity provider and the data provider, in a sense, for any machine and software or, you know, or system that needs that data and, and really become the, the, the leader in that space. And that's been a transition over the past few years to, to really uh, focus on that. So we're putting more, more effort, we change our pricing structure to be able to sell the connectivity as a standalone product, right? Uh, so we had to re-engineer a bit the product. We uh, changed the way we uh, commercialized that and so on. And now that's become our main activity is to sell uh, connectivity, again, to the machine vendors, to the software uh, uh, companies, to the end users. But uh, that by itself has become a, a very important product line for us and, uh, and a very core element of our strategy. And it is a starting point for any digital transformation effort. First, you got to collect the data from the shop floor before you can do anything else with it. So as people embark into all these uh, initiatives, or, uh, you know, I want to implement the Smart Factory Industry 4.0, I want to do a digital transformation, whatever they call it again, they realize at some point, well, first I have to connect to these machines and get the data out of these machines. So it's really the starting point and the foundation for all that. And, and we, we think that we have a very strong position in that space. Yeah, excellent. Let's get into data management. Um, again, I, I love quotes. Um, w. Edwards Deming once said, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. 
<laughs> and so, so data management is described as data integration and contextualization. And yes. I understand the concept of integration, um, mm -hmm. but contextualization seems to be the primary end result, end goal result. So how yeah. does one contextualize the data so that it's not just one big pile of data? Yeah, and that's a big challenge that's often misunderstood and underestimated. Uh, let's say that I was able to solve the connectivity challenge first is to be able to talk to every different machine brand model and so on and to try to decipher what, out, what data is available and, and collect that data. That's the connectivity layer. Once you get that, you have to bring all that data somewhere in a central location, right? Uh, like a, a big database where you say, okay, I'm collecting the data from all the machines on all the lines in my factory. And then you need to organize that data so you can... Uh, understanding, okay, well, this stream of data came from that machine and it was actually building that product, you know, using these components and all kinds of external uh, elements are coming together on, on, the, on the product. So you must be able to track each individual element. You must be able to relate that to the data stream coming from the machine, so all the connectivity piece. And you need to put that in a context of, hey, this board was in that location at that moment, and this is exactly what happened at that time, right? So building all that, uh, the, the relationship between the materials, the product, the, the machines and, and, and the environment, the operators and so on, that, that's what we call, uh, you know, the data management is part of that. But it, but it goes beyond uh, just, just those, those, those centralizing that data, if you like, and context, contextualizing that data. I'll give you another example. Uh, some machines are able to, to read the serial number of the boards as it comes through the machine. Like inspection machines, by default, will be able to read the barcodes, right? And tell you that this is serial number XYZ and these are the, the result of the inspection that go with it. So when you connect to the machine, you get the data that's already contextualized, at least to know which product matches the data stream. Uh, other machines don't have that capability, depending on the machine brand model, what options the, the, the customer has purchased, did they buy the traceability option or not from the vendor and so on. Sometimes we just get the data stream, but we don't know which board was actually going through the, through the machine at the time. So we have to be able to put additional hardware like barcode readers and so on and different things around the machine to capture the serial number of the board and through you know, timestamps uh, equate or associate the data from the machine with the product that was actually in the machine at the time. So that's also part of you know, contextualizing the data that we get from different sources and putting it all together. Uh, I mean, on top of that, then you have to be able to collect a very vast amounts of information in real time without slowing down the line and the machines, being able to store that data very fast, and then being able to retrieve that data very fast once you need it, because you need to, to run a report or you need to create a dashboard. And that's because we're talking about very vast amounts of data. This is really also very challenging. So. All of that complexity is hidden under the data management uh, space, uh, but there's a, quite a bit of uh, technology there as well. So the connectivity is the first piece, but the data management, I would say, is probably the most complicated element of all this. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Um, to make sense of that data, otherwise yeah. it's just data, right? Uh, That's it. And it needs to be structured and organized. It, it, it's not like a you know, one database and one table. It's, it's, it's that same data must be processed and stored in different ways for different purposes. If you're going to run a traceability report, it's not the same as if you're trying to do a real-time dashboard, for example, or you're trying to run some SPC or advanced analytics. The data must be structured differently because the data, again, it's not just for our own use. It's for any other system that wants to access that data. So it could be the ERP, it could be an MES, it could be an artificial intelligence uh, algorithm that requires data. And they, they all require different uh, structures of data access in different ways. So again, that's a very complex uh, topic. Right. The contextualization has to be put into context itself, right? Who's that's looking right. at the data? So I, even, I would imagine there's probably some scenarios where the manufacturer of the equipment is collecting certain bits of data which they feel would be not relevant to anyone but someone three steps down the line might find that data helpful so so right. i that it's a never-ending journey right uh, i give you the example of inspection machines that uh, in the past it was good enough to connect to a machine to know okay which serial number of the board was inspected is it a pass or a fail and maybe collect some defect codes right okay i got the defect on 
C51 and so on. And that was enough, you know, for to do traceability and to manage the, the, the flow of the repair and so on. But nowadays we want to collect actually, some customers want to collect every single measurement or attribute that was uh, collected from an, an inspection of one board. And it can be up to 50,000 measurements or attributes on one single board. That's a lot of data. And then on top of that, they also want to collect the images. They want to keep the, 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 the image of the board inspection and the defects and so on. Maybe not forever, but they want to keep that information stored somewhere for a period of time as well. And you can imagine again the, the, the challenges associated with uh, storing very complex, uh, heavy images for, for a period of time on, on uh, machines that are pumping boards uh, every few seconds. So, sure. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I'd imagine at some point, um, TMI, too much information, is a, is a concern. Um, and I, I think there's probably two types of customers that you have, just knowing human nature. One that just wants more data, the, the more data, the better, because um, mm -hmm. they're just data geeks and they, and they you know, geek out over all those numbers. And mm -hmm. the, the end result though, is the data has to be helpful. So too much yeah. data, you drown in, in helpfulness. So mm -hmm. is it your customers? Is it you? Is it, is it a, a combination of, of um, opinions and consensus that determine what's enough data, what's too much data, what's too little data. You know, yeah. uh, it, some people want a dashboard, green, red, right? Just green, red. Yeah. Tell me go, no go. Tell me to worry. Tell me not to worry. Um, some people want all the numbers behind that green or red. Uh, how do you yeah. differentiate that? Uh, you know, it's really up to the customer ultimately to decide. And again, it's a journey, right? So, uh, I think everybody realized that, yes, we all dream about having artificial intelligence that, uh, you know, some kind of big brother that watches everything that's happening in the factory and can analyze all the trends and automatically adjust the equipment before something goes out of spec, right? But we're not quite there yet. So as a matter of fact, there's different levels of sophistication, you're right. And depending on, uh, you know, the output, what function the, the customer wants to, to be able to implement, what system he wants to be able to implement, that dictates, dictates dictates, I'm sorry, what data we need to collect and provide from different machines. So it's really, uh, and, and again, it's going to probably uh, be a little bit more every year. They're going to implement more applications, more system that will require more data and so on. So again, it's it's a journey from the customer side as well as uh, on our side, it's it's really uh, gathering. But but it, it's always going to be more data to gather and more applications that will take uh, advantage of that data over time. It's a little bit like the... You know, the, the, the dilemma with the, the computer, uh, personal computer performance versus the, the software running on that computer, right? If you think you come up with a box that can run the existing software so much faster, you'll never need anything better. Well, Windows will come along and give you more software that will slow down your machine until you need to. It, it, it's, it's similar. I mean, the more data you get, the more data you want and the more data you can use. But it's a gradual transition. I think uh, one of, I think this is true. Maybe it's an urban myth, but I, I think this is a true quote. Uh, Bill Gates once said quite a few years ago, he can't imagine a world where anyone would need more than 640 you know, K of, of memory. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, look at us now. It's, it, it's progress, uh, right? It's technology and progress are two things that are seemingly unstoppable. And uh, I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, the, the, again, the, you know, the, the, the factory of the future will always remain that the factory of the future because there's always more you can do. There's always more automation. There's always more data to be collected, more analysis you can do. And that will remain true for I mean, as long as I can imagine. Sure. Yeah. yeah it, it, there will always be a factory of the future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so um, we talked about connectivity data management. Uh, let's, let's touch on uh, material and process control. Um, explain to me what importance material control process control uh, have and, and what issues are we trying to solve with that? Yeah, no, for sure. If you, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just want to draw a little uh, um, comparison between the, the material control and other what we call the track trace control applications that we offer relative to the connectivity and data management layer. Okay, because uh, again, again, I explained, I don't want that to be too much Kajiscan centric. But the fact is that the uh, Kajiscan, again, I, I mentioned, we're very uh, focused. Uh, we have a narrow focus on some certain areas, and we don't pretend that we're going to be able to solve all the problems of the world. And I don't think that any company could say that the smart factory will be achieved with just one software system or one vendor. It's not real. It's really a, it's going to be a collection of different pieces of equipment and software working together 
to really continuously deliver more and more functionality. So with that in mind, again, the, 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 the key role that we play is the, the, the machine connectivity, the data management, and then open up that data management to the rest of the world, right? Uh, it doesn't matter which uh, software needs this data. Our job is to provide the data. On top of that, some customers will have specific needs, and then we have a small suite of uh, applications that uh, can fulfill those needs if they, if they don't already have another system doing that. So material control is, is a good example. Uh, many companies have software solutions to provide material management because it's a very important requirement in our industry, right? Uh, I often like to say that uh, you know, building a, building a circuit board, you know, uh, assembling a circuit board is basically a value-added distribution, component distribution business. Uh, you're buying all these different components from different companies that are worth a lot of money, and you need to put them in the right place on the board. And that's basically your job if you're, if you're a contract manufacturing doing electronics assembly. So the value, the actual value of the components represents maybe 80% of the finished cost of the product. The rest, uh, the value added of putting the components on the board is actually a smaller cost compared to the, the cost of the material. So big dollars in the materials themselves. So this task of trying to control those materials on the pr production floor, making sure that they're used in an optimal fashion, that you know where to find the materials, that the lines are not stuck because one reel is missing somewhere. Uh, all that material management is paramount to having an efficient operation. So that's why many companies offer such solutions. In some cases, the machine vendors themselves will offer material management uh, software. In some cases, the uh, some of the MES and ERP uh, systems have material management. We also have it. Ours is highly specialized for electronics. And it's, uh, I would say it's a uh, machine uh, vendor neutral. So because of the nature of what we do, we connect with, uh, you know, sometimes the, the for example, uh, the pick and place is from vendor A, but the storage tower, the automated storage tower, which becomes very popular now is from a different vendor, right? But they have to talk to each other because when the, the feeder is running low, uh, the components are running low in one feeder slot, we want to be able to send a request to the, the storage tower to prepare that reel because we're gonna need it an hour from now, right? So that kind of integration and shake and communication between the different uh, pieces of equipment uh, that's that's the kind of thing we do, and so we offer a complete suite of uh, material management uh, solutions for that. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Let's get into traceability. Um, mm -hmm. I can think of a couple of you know takeaways from traceability, which might include um, recall management um, to know if a part was bad, uh, know which where those parts went, which serial numbers they're in, uh, and improved, yeah. which can lead to obviously improved dependability and reliability. Um, mm -hmm. review those key traceability takeaways and other benefits that come with uh, traceability. Sure, sure. Yeah, in the past, the, the traceability was really viewed as a, like an insurance policy for the large OEMs, you know, that are selling complex, expensive products. And sometimes there's going to be some recalls to be made. So if you have a good traceability in place, you'll be able to identify the root cause of the defect and really narrow down the, the, the range of the products that you have to recall, right? So which will have obviously the cost uh, savings and the, also the brand image uh, impact of having to recall fewer cars or whatever the case may be. I mean, imagine doing a recall on pacemakers, for example, right? So in some cases, it's uh, so, for, so for that reason, you know, industries like uh, uh, automotive, uh, aerospace, medical have always had strict requirements for traceability. But it was just that it was an insurance policy to try to minimize the costs and implications of uh, defective products in the field. Uh, and then it started to spread to uh, more of the consumer products, you know, like the, the, the smartphones. And it's not because these products are life critical, but it's because you sell so many of them that if, if indeed there is a defect and you need to recall, there's a huge difference between recalling 1 million units or, or recalling 10,000 units. So it's a cost issue again associated with that. So that, that was the initial driver for traceability. I would say now that we're in thinking more globally about smart factories and industry 4.0, I think people realize that traceability is actually only a, a natural byproduct of a good tracking and control system, right? So if you're trying to make sure through automation and software that the product is being built the right way in the first place and that you eliminate human errors, well, if you just register all these events that are 
need to be controlled by software to barcode scanning and things like that, and the data you collect from the machines, if you just store that in a historical database, then you end up building a very complete traceability uh, history database without additional costs, if you want. It's just, again, a byproduct of a, of a good software system in place. And then once you have that data, you can analyze that data to see, okay, well, I'm seeing some trends, you know, there's so many defects always happening and where, where those de defects come from. And then you can troubleshoot, identify root cause and improve your own efficiency internally. So it's not just for your customer anymore, it's for your own uh, cost savings and quality improvement and so on that you want to get uh, gather and analyze that traceability data. So. Yeah, very good. Uh, mm -hmm. Analytics, we're making our way down the list here. Analytics, mm -hmm. the dictionary describes analytics as a systematic computational analysis of data or statistics, which brings me to another quote, Mark Twain um, mm -hmm. in, uh, popularized, he didn't, he didn't write this, but he popularized uh, the, the, uh, the following. There are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. So, so I, I, we always have to be careful with, with statistics. How do analytics yeah. and statistics uh, play, uh, how do they work to improve reliability and efficiencies on the factory floor? Yes. Well, analytics is, is a way to look at a very large amount of uh, data and try to make sense out of it, right? As you indicated, if you collect all this data from every machine, no human being can actually go through that and figure out what's going on. So if you start doing basic statistics like averages and, and percentages and things like that, it's already a, a, a good first filter to figure out what's going on. And then you can start charting those key measurements, you know, or KPIs uh, graphically. So you can see if there's a trend or if it goes out of uh, limits or things like that. So very quickly, you can just calculate some, some basic uh, numbers and, 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 and some very simple analytics, and that becomes very useful. So in our case, we have uh, we, we kind of draw the line between the real-time analytics. So this is to display a dashboard right on the line for the operators to see how his line is running in real time based on different uh, key parameters. And, uh, and if there's anything that goes out of whack, then he gets uh, right away a notification and he's able to drill down to the root cause and again, correct the problem before it gets out of hand. So that's the real time part of it. And you know, true technology today, uh, somebody, I mean, uh, the operator can see a big screen on top of his line, but the supervisor in his office can see the same charts. And maybe the, the plant manager who's playing golf is able to see that on his phone at the same time if he wants to. Uh, but it's really about visibility, uh, monitoring your operation and making sure that everything is under control. Uh, the, the next layer is really more into uh, being able to drill down in the historical data once again, where, where it's you know similar to traceability, but a bit more advanced because now you're, you're not just pulling the raw data, but you're also trying to analyze that data to see where there seem to be some trends. You know, With this product, we're not doing as well as the last time we ran that same product on that, on that same line. So what's changed and, and where where are the areas, again, for improvement? So that's only basic analytics, and that's what we typically offer ourselves. But there's so many more layers of analytics that uh, you know we plan to develop ourselves, but many, many other companies have such uh, analytics tools, you know, some, some are you know, part of the business and business uh, intelligence, you know, BI type of uh, category of, uh, of tools, and uh, AI more and more, deep learning. So there's a ton of companies that are really good at doing you know, data analysis. And again, in that case, our job is to provide the best possible data out of the shop floor. And in some cases, uh, provide the domain expertise because an AI company may not be uh, able to understand where does the data come from if it's electronics, you know, they're not experts in electronics manufacturing, so they don't know what this data or that data piece really means and what are the interactions. That, that knowledge, that know-how we can provide to these companies. So that's why we work more and more with software companies that uh, they can take their, their algorithms, their really smart uh, data analytics tools and bring that into our industry. And we help them collect, connect to the data and we, we help them make sense of that data as well so that their technology can be leveraged. So in that sense, I think we're gonna hopefully help a lot of software companies that are not specialized in electronics come into our world over the next few years. You know. And that will uh, really change the landscape of the vendors. We we used to see always the same few companies in our in our industry, but I think this will change quite a bit as technology, you know, uh, comes from all different angles, all different industries. 
and somehow we are, we're there to facilitate their access to our industry. Oh, that's, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which kind of brings me into Industry 4.0. Um, yeah. we've, we've been talked about Industry 4.0 for years, right? Yeah. I, I've, yeah. You and I both have heard Industry 4.0 being batted around for a long time. It mm-hmm. spent a lot of years in the theoretical, and it does seem to now be in the practical. Where, mm-hmm. What's the status of, of Industry 4.0 or, uh, or whatever other acronyms are, are being flown around uh, for, that, yeah. for that same descriptor? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that Industry 4.0 is just that. It's a term, right, that was, uh, that was invented by, by someone at some point to describe, uh, you know, what should be the, the, the next uh, goal, you know, to, towards, uh, uh, again, a continuous journey of uh, progress and technology, right? Uh, personally, I don't see a big difference between Industry 4.0, Smart Factory, uh, you know, digitalization as to what we've been doing for the past 20 years. When we started a company, we said, hey, a lot of manual stuff is still going on, a lot of room for human errors, a lot of data is not being collected, analyzed properly, right? And then we just need to use the existing technology. It's funny because our, 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 our industry creates the most advanced technology but we're not using the technology sometimes to, to improve our own operations, right? So we said, hey, there's so much we can do. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, we were really into RFID and we said, wow, you know, we can bypass the barcode and go on the next step where every day, all the data will be collected in real time with nobody even knowing that the, the data collection is taking place because RFID allows us to do that. I mean, 20 years later, we still work a lot with barcodes and, uh, and we also interface with uh, smart machines and so on. Well, as, the, as, the there, saying, but, but. As, as the saying goes, the cobbler's children have no shoes. That seems to be applied. The point is, that for, for us, it's a, it, again, it's a, it's a journey of uh, trying to improve, gradually improve how we do things using technology. And it's, it, it, it's just, again, technology being applied to, to solve problems in, in real life in, in, the, in the electronics manufacturing world, in, in our case. And uh, whether you call it uh, smart factory industry 4.0, it's it's on that continuum for us, you know. So uh, it's all important and uh, great if these programs or these terms uh, allow people to better understand where we should go and why we should do that. That's great. But uh, quite frankly, for us, it's it's just the same the same you know the same yeah. thing that we've been doing for 20 years and we plan to continue doing for the next 20 years. You know? Excellent. It seems like. The problem with the name 4.0 is you think by now we ought to be at least 4.1, you know, or 4.2, <laughs> or 5 even. Um, but yeah. uh, anyway, we seem to be stuck on that number. But, but, but that's I, also the, 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 the basic flaw of these programs is it sounds like a, you have a starting point and you have an end point, right? Where eventually you're going to achieve this and then you'll be done. But I don't see it that way. I think it's a, no, it's a journey yeah. that will never be uh, finished. So I agree. But again, whatever it's works, it's, it's okay with It's me. progress. Yeah, it, it's, it's yeah, constantly it's moving, sometimes yeah. slow, sometimes fast. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, you know, when I was a kid, um, I used to watch a show, you know, called The Jetsons, which was the family of the yes. future that lived in a something floating in the air. And they went to work in sky cars, you know, that can fly through the sky. And they had mm-hmm. robots cleaning their house. And, and, and I used to read uh, Modern Mechanics and Popular Science when I was a kid. And, you know, I remember by the year 2000, this is what, you know, society would, would look like. And again, we had flying cars and houses floating in the air. So there was, there's always been a myth of what the future will bring. Uh, right. And then the reality of what the future has, you know, will be. Um, and I, I keep that in mind when I read more and more now about so-called lights out factories, right? So, you know, factories with no real need for human intervention that just stomping out products, you know, with, with no lights. Yeah. Uh, how is that a practical, is that a Jetsons, you know, thing that will never actually happen? Uh, and does your company, is, is that a goal within your company? Do you have clients requesting something closer to a lights out factory? And in our industry, is that even a practical goal? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on other industries. I think some industries are probably easier to fully automate than others. Ours is a bit challenging for different reasons, not necessarily on actually on the software side, more on the mechanical side of things. You know, uh, I'm thinking about a very simple example of loading a reel into a feeder, right? Uh, 
depending on the on the machine brand, the feeders design is different, but the reels are all pretty much similar. But you always need somebody who's going to peel the cover tape, insert the reel, you know, slide the tape through the right, uh, and then eventually index that and make it ready for the machine. Uh, that part, to me, that part to me sounds very complicated. It, it doesn't mean that it will not happen, or maybe some companies are already working on trying to find a way to completely automate that manual process. But uh, but so far it hasn't been achieved. Let's see. However, we've seen other parts where there was great progress. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the automated storage, right? Uh, I didn't see that coming a few years ago, and now it's very prevalent. I mean, if you think about, you know, being able to put a bunch of reels, you put that into a, a bin, and then somehow they all get stored automatically. And then when you, you need them, they're going to be dispensed automatically. That's pretty impressive, right? And that's a higher level of automation than what we I even expected to, to happen uh, in my lifetime <laughs> to some extent. And now they're taking the, that one step further with the small EGVs that can take a pile of reels from the automated storage system and take that directly up to the line, right? But there's still going to be a human uh, to pick up those reels and again load them on the feeders manually. So, so that's just one example. But, but I think today it's not really uh, practical to achieve lights out factory. It has to be also economically viable to do it, right? So maybe if we put enough money, like we can go to the moon, so we can put enough money, we can have lights out factory, but is it gonna be financially viable to do it that way? Uh, if it's cheaper to hire people to do it, that's what the industry will do because cost is always uh, very important. So I think there's gonna be continuing progress again, uh, whether it's gonna be a real lights out factory at some point, I don't know, and uh, I don't know when, right? <laughs> so I'm not gonna try to guess that. But what customers are typically asking us today and what they're trying to do is certainly to reduce the number of human beings needed, you know, number of operators needed to run one line, or maybe they want to have eventually one operator for two lines, you know, and try to minimize what things need to be done by a human and everything else should be automated. So I give the example of the automated storage, transporting the material. Uh, if you if you do that automatically, you eliminate human beings, uh, operators, you know, and then... Uh, and, and that's financially viable right now. So sure. uh, that's my perspective on the lights off factor. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but the idea is, again, it's uh, on that continuum of trying to add more automation as long as it makes uh, business sense. Yeah. Sure. I think uh, selective lights mm -hmm. out, but, you know, obviously in yeah. our industry, we're putting, um, there's, I think there's a need for a little bit of light <laughs> in our industry. Yeah, uh, so far, yes. Yeah. Yogi Berra uh, once said, uh, and, and if you're familiar with his quotes, he's always very understated. You can observe a lot yeah. by watching. Uh, 20 years ago, when you and your, your two partners uh, founded uh, your company, what were the observations that led you to form that company? No one was asking for Industry 4.0 back then, mm -hmm. right? at least not yeah. by that name. Uh, mm -hmm. So what, what did you see that maybe others didn't see? that yeah. you, you, you created a product. Did you create a product without a need or was there a, was there a need that you created a product for at that it's time? It's a great question. It's a great question. It's a funny story as well. Actually, what we did is uh, first, we decided we wanted to start a company okay, without any idea for the product. Almost that. No, it's not true. But uh, one of the founders, Vincent, uh, you know, after doing his MBA, he was still working for IBM at the time, but he had this uh, you know, ambition of starting a company and he said, okay, it should be in our industry. This is what I know. This is a, and he, and he came up with, a, you know, one ID for a, for a product based on his experience. And, uh, and then he started, uh, you know, working towards that, build, putting together a business plan to start a company based on that one idea. And then he approached Andre because, he, you know, Andre and Vincent and I used to work together at IBM, but also later on, we moved on to different jobs. And at one point, uh, I was working for Universal Instruments in sales. Andre was working for Universal Instruments, but in the technical role back in Binghamton. And Vincent was still at IBM, but he was in charge of the group buying the machines from Universal, right? So that's how the three of us got to know each other a bit more. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, Vincent had a really good uh, confidence in Andre's, uh, you know, technical uh, expertise. And so he went to him and said, hey, I'm, I want to start a company and here's the product ID that I have. And I'd like to, to know what you think about that. And Andre said, well, well, I don't know about your product ID, but, you know, I would like to start a company too. So if you're looking for a business partner, I'm in. <laughs> and, uh, so I said, okay, well, come on in. So 
the two of them started talking and at some point they said, you know, it might be nice to have somebody who knows something about the business side of, uh, you know, sales and, and things like that because they, they have no experience on, on that front. So they reached out to me and I said, yeah, I've always wanted to start a business as well. So I want to join you guys. So, so we started to look into uh, the original ID that Vincent had and uh, for a different reason, decided that was not exactly the right fit for us. Uh, it required too much investment, too much time, you know, to come up with the, the, the first product. So, uh, but at the, by that time we were, uh, you know, sold on the idea of working together and starting a company together. So we said, okay, let's look at the, our industry and let's try to identify some problems that are not solved today that we think we could solve. And that's through that, uh, uh, long term, uh, very wide view brainstorm. We came up with this uh, basic idea of what we're doing today. Uh, and then just by observation, you're right. Is, uh, uh, we, we had the chance of having a, a background where we used to be in the business making semiconductor packaging. So we were making components at IBM. And then I worked for a company that was doing, a, you know, contract manufacturing for building boards. So I saw the other side of the, the industry, the people that are taking the components and putting them on boards. And then after that, I worked for Universal that was selling the machines, putting those components on the boards, right? So I think that perspective helped to identify some opportunities that maybe were not obvious for somebody who's not, uh, who did not have a chance to look into the different sides of our industry, right? Uh, one example is a very obvious example, and that start, ended up being our starting point. Uh, when you're making components like we did at IBM, you take great care in uh, maintaining the uh, moisture sensitivity and actually trying to design the components to be as as um, as insensitive to moisture as possible, right? You don't want the component that's going to have a, a shelf life of uh, 16 hours on the production floor. That's that's bad. So if you're making components, you're trying to make them as robust as possible. But the nature of the materials is such that they, they will always be sensitive and some will be sensitive at level three, four, five and six. But it's a really big deal because your whole business depends on trying to make these components, uh, you know, easy to buy and easy to, to assemble for, for the electronics uh, manufacturers. So we're very, very conscious about this moisture sensitivity issue. And once the components are manufactured, they're baked, you know, dry, they're put into a sealed bag with the desiccant, right? And then the big label ended, you know, oh, well, these components are moisture sensitive. Once you open the bag, you have only 24 hours to, to go to reflow. If, if otherwise it's a big reliability issue, right? So in the component world, this is really clear. And then when I jumped over to the contract manufacturing side of the world, I was uh, shocked, you know, to see, wow, these guys have no clue what is a moisture sensitive component. They open those bags and they, they throw them in the garbage and they, they send the components out on the floor. There's no tracking whatsoever. I said, my God, this is, this is uh, unreal, right? And imagine all the reliability issues that this causes, but nobody seemed to be aware of that because the, the, the reliability defects induced by moisture sensitivity are typically latent, right? They will come out in the field and it's hard to relate that to the root cause. So sure. because they're not obvious, not apparent, it was a big issue, but nobody seemed to care or to know that it was a big issue. So that's one example where it's okay. That's part of the you know automation that's really lacking here uh, between this layer of the, of the world and this layer of the world, there's a big gap. And we have this understanding, this expertise, and we can come up with a solution to automate the handling of moisture sensitive components. That turned out to be our first product and we still sell that product today. Uh, but back then it was, uh, it was like that. So, uh, so anyway, so long story short, uh, that's how we started the company uh, by basically first wanting to start a company, then looking for problems that were not solved and, and trying to apply the technology. But of course we had the, the, the the fortunate uh, situation is we were not out of a job and trying to start something quick, right? We had a, already a job. We were able to brainstorm for more than one year, trying to anticipate, you know, where do we start? Where do we go next? What's the big vision of things? And then uh, that really helped out afterwards because uh, it's not like we started out, okay, we're going to invent MSD control. We're going to sell that and then see what happens. No, no, we already had the, the roadmap for the future and to be able to track not just moisture sensitive components, all components, right? And then to interface with the machines and to be able to do uh, traceability and to be able to do uh, all these other things that we do today, uh, that was already in, our, in the back of our mind. So we had a really long-term roadmap and we made sure that the architecture of our software would support that long-term roadmap. So, yeah. uh, so in that sense, I mean, I guess we, we looking back, we, we could see we were a bit visionary but it's just because we took the time to, to look at it, to look at the world and as it was and to try to anticipate what could be better 
and that that was the our, our uh, the chance that we had to to be able to to be in a position to do that so well, again, back to Yogi Berra. It's amazing what you can observe when when you when you look, you know, when you watch. So, in, in your uh, in your company, you're the sales guy, right? I know you're an engineer, but you're the sales guy primarily, and uh, and you and your other founders are, are kind of the engineering people. It, I've talked to a lot of business owners, and and through personal experience, you need the sales guy as one of the founders because. Without the sales guys, one of the founders, you'll just keep engineering products and never bring them to market. At some mm -hmm. point, and again, I don't want you to you know give them any family secrets, but at some point, did you ever have to go up to your team and go, "Okay, already, it, this is great. Let's release mm -hmm. it and 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 you know drag it from their drag it from their fingers uh, and and put it out to market?" Uh, because a lot of engineers, particularly when they have you know when they're founders. Mm -hmm are never quite ready to give their product away because it's, it could always be just, uh, you know, a, a molecule better, you know, uh, than, and, and the sales guy knows it's, it's nothing if it doesn't get out into the field. It, it has that yeah. been an experience uh, in your world? Not quite in our case. No, I would not say that. And, and maybe, right. maybe it's because again, we have a similar background. We're all manufacturing engineers. We're so by nature, we're conservative people. You know, we don't like to take big risks. Uh, and we know that uh, you know we're, we're like our customers. We used to to do their job to be the manufacturing engineers. When you're a manufacturing engineer, you want to improve things, you want to implement new technology, but you cannot disrupt or or impact your operations, right? The lines have got to keep running. And if you shut down something because you try to put something that's not reliable, you're going to be in big trouble. So you don't want to do that. So I think we kept that mindset all along. That uh, I don't think we ever went too fast to the market and. Uh, I'm not the one who would push to put a product to market if it's not quite ready. Um, and uh, no, we never had those kinds of uh, issues much. I mean, in some cases, uh, you know, you think the product is ready, you install it, and then you realize, wow, you know, it's, uh, there's some things we did not anticipate, you know? So the learning curve sometimes has been longer than expected because uh, on surface, things look simple, but when you get into the real life, uh, yeah, it, it sometimes it's a lot more complex. There's a, a lot of little things that we did not anticipate in the product design. So that's why we're very careful now. When we design products, we work closely with our customers, our partners, and then we go through several steps of uh, you know testing the product and doing through a first pilot, and then if needed a, a second pilot before we release it uh, across the board. Uh, I think that conservative approach has paid has been good for us. We're certainly more conservative than the average software company. You know, if you if you think about you know companies like Microsoft, they always uh, they release a software that's full of bugs, but they say, oh, in the next next revision, we'll fix all that, right? Right. That's kind of uh, the image we have. Well, we, we're not like that. We're the manufacturing engineers guys who say, no, the, you cannot put something out that's not going to work because our customers will be in trouble. So, we we got to find a way to introduce technology without disrupting operation, and that's always sure. been the key element of our strategy. Yeah. Sure. In, in our world, you, know, you talk about putting out product and maybe there's a bug in it. In our world, what we didn't anticipate is what the customer would do. You know, and, mm -hmm. and of course, I'm exaggerating, but we'll, we'll put out a new, new software rev for one of our machines and a customer will call and say, yeah, you know, when I stand on my head, wear red socks and press the, these three buttons at the same time, the machine crashes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Why are you doing that? <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, you can't test every combination of what a human mm -hmm. might do, right? So... Yeah. And in your world, you not only are you dealing with the human factor, which is mm -hmm. which which is unstable enough, but you're dealing with a variety of different machines and and written by humans doing different things, um, yeah. not w without what you're doing in mind when they originally mm -hmm. developed it. So I, I imagine that just complicates things even more. Right? It does, and sometimes I find it funny. It's probably because we're engineers, but we probably tackled the worst possible problem, you know, and put it down on our shoulders. And so everybody else can have it easy, <laughs> but that's the way it is. And I yeah. think in a way it brings a lot of value because it's truly simple. So for the people who, who look at it from the outside and never tried to do this type of machine connectivity data collection, it may look simple, but everybody that's tried it, then they know what, what it really entails. And then sure. they're very happy that we're there to take care sure. of it for them. I imagine it's just as a job security for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Job security forever. I would imagine yeah. um, you unwittingly end up cleaning up a lot of other, other companies code <laughs> you know, because you know, the, the way it may be written may not be conducive to you getting that, that data stream. So you, you probably have to clean up a little bit of code here and there uh, 
in order That's for your product point. to work, right? Yes. Essentially, when we're talking about a machine interface, it's really a software integration project, right? We're not talking right. to the hardware itself. We're talking to some piece of software that's uh, installed on the machine. So, and sometimes it's even a whole software. So, depending on the machine vendors, sometimes their their interface to the outside world is through a host somewhere. So, we're really talking to a computer that's running a piece of software. So, it's a software integration project, and and those, of course, the success of that integration depends on both sides. You know, there's only so much we can do if there's real flaws in that interface. We can work around it somehow, but there's a limit at some, at some point. You're right. Uh, the key to the, our success is that customers don't want to have two vendors pointing fingers at each other if something goes wrong, right? So if we sell, they say, well, we're going to sell you a connectivity platform. It's going to work with all your vendors. Well, if this vendor, for whatever reason, the connection is not working, uh, we're not going to say, well, that vendor, I'm sorry, but their, their interface sucks, you know, and nothing we can do about right. it. Right. <laughs> that would not be very good. So we yes, take the yes. ownership. Yeah, we take the ownership of the interface and we have to work with the machine vendor and we have to find a way with them to make it better. And so in that sense, yes, we, I think we, we become a, a, an expert, you know, for the machine vendors to improve their interfaces over time to make sure that this will work well. Yeah. Final question uh, before we, we, uh, we go our own ways. Uh, you had a, a pretty good crystal ball 20 years ago and mm -hmm. you know, a, a little bit of insight, a little bit of luck, all that, you know, it, it mm -hmm. the industry kind of needed what you're, company um, was doing um, and it needed it before it knew it needed it. So where do you see, put that crystal ball back to use. Where, what do you see our industry, uh, your company, our industry uh, mm -hmm. 20 years from now, or maybe five years from now, 20 is Jetson's territory. The, the further out you go, the, the yeah. least accurate it gets. But where, what do you see the future in our industry mm -hmm. in terms of uh, smart factory and, and other things mm -hmm. relevant to what you guys do? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. Uh, the, the, the one general statement I can make is that uh, the, the rate of change in the world and in technology especially is uh, accelerating constantly, right? So I think uh, you know, the changes we've seen in the last 20 years, there's going to be as much change in the next five years. That's just the way it is. It keeps going faster and faster at some point. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to keep up, right? But I think this, is, this will continue until something really big changes in our economy and the way we do things. So, uh, so that becomes hard to say, you know, like if 20 years ago, you would ask me what's going to happen in 20 years, I would have said that's, that's not easy to say, but uh, there's some general trends and general direction. How fast it's going to go, I don't know. And actually, I would say that if I look back to what we dreamed 20 years ago, it took a lot longer than we expected. We would have hoped to be much farther ahead today than, than we are uh, just because of resistance to change, you know. Again, the manufacturing industry is very conservative. You cannot bring new technology and hope for wide and fast acceptance as you would in the consumer market. It just doesn't work like that. The implications of, uh, again, impacting your operations are just too great. So uh, that's, that's the nature of, uh, of our industry. And I don't think that the fundamentals of that will change so much. But, but there is increased pressure. I mean, everybody realizes the world is changing fast. The pandemic has accentuated that, that all the big contract manufacturers or the big OEMs, they know that they have to accelerate digital transformation and they have programs in place. The CEOs have told their team, hey, we need to be you know, further and faster than we initially expected. We see that from our customers. So the pressure now will be on the technology vendors like us to be able to keep up, to deliver the technology that already exists, but to more customers and to implement that on a broader scale faster. I see that. So every company that's in a little bit like us, that's into industry 4.0 technology will face a, a challenge to keep up with the demand over the next couple of years. That's what we expect. So we're preparing ourselves for that. Um, you know, it's not just recovering from the, you know, the, the downturn of the pandemic is that, no, we're going to go to the next level of, uh, of digital transformation, I think in our industry and uh, how far we're going to go and how fast, I don't know, but it's going to be an exciting ride. I think the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I think we're in for a wild ride from uh, pent up demand, um, unfulfilled pent up demand and, uh, and other other factors. Uh, the, you know, when I look at, uh, when I look at uh, digital communication, zoom, you know, zoom, 10 months, ago, 12 months ago, was a term used, you know, about for cars or, or on cameras, yeah. right to zoom in on something. Yeah. Now it has a whole new meaning. Uh, 
we've had the technology around for a long time, but now all of a sudden it's completely embraced and it's yeah. now mainstream. Uh, and, yeah. and I think the same in your world, uh, in mm. connected factories, connected equipment, I think it went yeah. from, yeah, that's a great idea some, someday to mm. now people, because of the pandemic, because of lots of, lots of different issues, it's all kind of perfect stormed together and yeah. it's becoming uh, universally recognized as it's here <laughs> and yeah. it's ready. No, so yeah, I, I do see that. Um, Francois Monette, thank you so much for being my guest today on Reliability Matters. I appreciate your insight. I, I really am impressed with your uh, company's visionary skills and your, you and your two other partners, your visionary skills. You definitely saw something 20 years ago that um, uh, was, uh, was in need and without people really noticing it. And um, you certainly exceed in the, uh, in the fortune telling business um, more so than popular science and, and, and uh, all the other you know, Jetsons and things like that. So you hit the mark. So thanks for, for being my guest. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you uh, health and safety and prosperity into this new year. Thank you very much, Mike. All the same to you. Thanks for having me again. Of course. Thank you. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A video version of this podcast is available on our Reliability Matters YouTube channel. Be sure and subscribe to that as well. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments to my email address, mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Once again, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.